you for taking time to listen to this sermon podcast from First United Methodist Church and of our campus in Lexington, Kentucky. It is our prayer that as you listen today, you will be encouraged, challenged, and equipped to be all God has for you. We invite you to join us for worship on Sunday mornings at either 8.30 or 11 o'clock a.m., at our Todd's Road campus near the Hamburg area of Lexington. It is New Year's Eve. Janelle knows what I'm talking about. It is New Year's Eve in the life of the church. I don't care about the last day in December. Uh, I care about today. New Year's Eve. The, the very last day of our liturgical calendar. We have spent a year with Jesus. First Sunday of Advent last year. We began this whole trek through the Gospel of Matthew. And other than a few Sundays we spent in First Peter, we've been journeying with Matthew's Jesus. We've been living his story and engaging it within the life of the church's calendar. We started in Advent, the season where we anticipate the birth of Jesus, and then we also anticipate his second coming. We live in this dual tension. Then we enter into Christmas season and celebrate the incarnation of our God. We turn to epiphany in the season of light where we recognize that light has birthed into the earth and uh, we offer up gifts of thanksgiving for that. We uh, move from epiphany into this just very single, minor, tiny time of ordinary time that just skips right past you if you don't notice it. And then we turn to Lent, this grand penitential season where we examine uh, the ways in which sin has grabbed hold of our lives and the ways in which through God's grace we can be set free from sin. We enter into Holy Week and the great services of Monday, Thursday, and Good Friday, Holy Saturday, and Easter Sunday. And then after Easter season comes Pentecost, the gift of the Spirit on the church, Trinity Sunday, where we celebrate the fullness of God's inner relationship and its reality for the life of the church. And then we spend like 432,000 Sundays in ordinary time. This great time where we literally count off the Sundays the first Sunday after Pentecost, the second Sunday after Pentecost, the third Sunday after Pentecost. We count them and we count them living out ordinary time. Name that because it's the numbers we count, not because of it being any less special. It's this season where we celebrate the church being the church. For in so much as Christmas and Easter tell the story of Christ, ordinary time tells the story of the church from its birth at Pentecost until today. Christ the King Sunday. Right, in, right towards the end, we have All Saints where we begin this move to kind of a, a grander vision of the end of times, the ways in which those who've gone before us will uh, be reconciled with us and we will take on our resurrection bodies. And then for these last three Sundays before Advent, we move from Christ kind of uh, reigning to Christ returning to bring about the fullness of his kingdom, for heaven and earth to come together and for the final judgment to come. Three weeks of of Jesus' parables about separating groups, the bridesmaids, the farmers and their talents, and today the sheep and the goats, this eschatological end of times judgment that only the reigning Christ can make. Today we turn to a passage that I told Sarah, in some ways I just want to get up here and read it and go sit down because it's the least ambiguous of all the passages and yet it it is so central to our church calendar and to our lives as Christians to, to actually examine what Jesus has said and to see what it means for us. 
This passage starts, when the Son of Man comes in glory. We've talked about it a couple times this year, but Son of Man most of my life has been a fairly innocuous term. It, it in some ways felt like Jesus was trying to be really humble, and you know, I'm, I'm not calling myself the Messiah. I'm not saying I'm the Son of God. I'm, I'm the Son of Man, the human one. This is like the most subversive declaration Jesus could make. The Son of Man would immediately call upon the context of Daniel 7. Uh, this apocalyptic vision of uh, a heavenly battle between the forces of evil and good where God ultimately reigns. And in this passage, uh, God the Father is portrayed as the ancient one who then invites the human one. As I continued to watch the night vision of mine, I suddenly saw one like a human being, the Son of Man, coming with the heavenly clouds. He came to the Ancient One and was presented before him. Rule, glory, and kingship were given to him. All peoples, nations, and languages will serve him. His rule is an everlasting one. It will never pass away. His kingship is indestructible. This vision of Daniel in the midst of empire as Persia is beginning to be the great force in the world... It's a vision that even larger than Persia is God. And that in this vision, this God is the ancient one. And then this, this other one, this human one, the son of man who comes and is given by the ancient one the kingdom to rule and to reign and draw together all nations and to come in glory and announce judgment. And it is Jesus' preferred self-designation above all others, son of man. He begins this parable, when the Son of Man comes in all his glory, and if you are at all the least bit Jewish in this day, this is immediately what you hear, this apocalyptic revelation from Daniel. And then you wait with bated breath as he begins to unpack what this will look like. For Daniel dealt with empire, but now Jesus, as the Son of Man, seems to be dealing with the people right in front of him. When the Son of Man comes in his glory, he will separate the people as sheep. And goats, the sheep he will put at his right hand and the goats he will put on his left. And, and it's a very simple way he separates them. He tells them, uh, well done you who are at my right hand. When I was hungry, you fed me. When I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. When I was naked, you clothed me. And when I was in prison, you visited me. And they say, how, how did we do that? We, we didn't see these with you. And he said, whatever you do to the least of these, you do to me. Enter in and receive your reward, everlasting life. But then he says to this other crowd, when I was hungry, you didn't feed me. When I was thirsty, you didn't give me something to drink. When I was naked, you didn't clothe me. And when I was in prison, you didn't visit me. And they say, well, master, how did we not do that? You were not these things. And he says, well, whatever you didn't do to the least of these, you did to me. Go and receive your eternal punishment. If you did these things to the least, you've done them to me. If you didn't, you haven't done them for me. Jesus doesn't say we're going to separate you by uh, your grand cognition of the, uh, the reality of Christ's presence. He doesn't set out a list of philosophical props that you have to agree to. He says if you fed the hungry and gave water to the thirsty, if you clothed the naked and 
visited the prisoner. You've done this to me. Enter in and receive your glory. We shouldn't be surprised by this because Matthew's Jesus is never just about the fault. Matthew's Jesus is always embodying belief with an ethic of action. Jesus, Jesus throughout the gospel calls people to, to, yes, believe and to turn and repent, but through their belief to then put it into action, to love and to care and to bring about justice. He didn't even leave it as just do good. He reorients hearts that have no choice but to do good, to bear good fruit and to care for folks. Jesus doesn't separate faith and works. This passage, if we read it uh, just too quickly and out of the context of Matthew's gospel, can feel like salvation by works. It's not about faith. It's about the good you can do. Matthew's Jesus, though, assumes that you have, you've been with him on this journey. You've been his disciples journeying through, and you've heard over and over again that the first step is to believe and to receive and to trust in God, and then then through that, to do good works. It's a, a difference that is easy to miss, but it's crucial to understanding this. For Jesus, there is no salvation by faith or salvation by works. We are saved through his faithfulness. We are those called to faith and through faith live out good works. It's an expectation that at every turn you see the image of God in somebody. And, and quite frankly, that even more importantly, you see the image of God and those that the world doesn't. Jesus in the gospel shows a preference for the poor, for the prisoner, for the downtrodden, for the outcast, for those rejected by humanity. And it seems to be across his gospel an invitation for us to have that same preference to time after time to look after those that the world pushes to the margins and for us to help be his hands and feet, to lift them up and to exalt them. Now the danger there is to see ourselves as the lofty. To think we are different or uh, superior. It's instead to think of ourselves as humans and those, those other people that we would encounter as humans, as one's created in his image, bearing, bearing his image in the world, to see Christ in the other so that there is no more them and us. I've been thinking about uh, the way I talk about uh, this, this kind of response of, of justice, of, of providing food and water and clothing and shelter and visiting the prisoners and, and how how it can sound like something I'm trying to guilt you or trying to guilt myself about. But instead, I, I want to talk about it in terms of just being our outpouring of our love for God. Something that we do because we love our God and because he has first loved us. Not something that we do to earn anything, going back to last week's uh, crude attempt at a theology study. Instead, it's a response to God's grace. And it's something that we do day after day as we ask God to pour out his grace upon us. Felsh and I were talking about this passage and what we would love to see uh, 20 years from now having preached this passage. And we both, uh, she pointed to a story that we both read in seminary 
uh, in a book called Lest Innocent Blood Be Shed. It's the story of Le Chambon, France. Uh, during the Great War, uh, when Nazis were uh, uh, collaborating with the, uh, the powers in France to uh, eradicate Jews, there's this small mountain village of Le Chambon that became a place of refuge where they would actively hide the Jews from the soldiers, where they would protect them, where they would uh, make sure that they had food and that they had water and that they were cared for. They would uh, bring them into their homes and hide them. And when they heard that the guards would come, they would uh, move them out to the, to the woods. Once the time had passed, the guards had left away, they would go out and sing this hymn. And when the, the Jewish people heard this hymn, they would know it was safe to come back into town. This little village saw the image of Christ in these Jewish people and saw the, the demand for justice and they did it. And so Fellowship and I are talking about we would love that if we had a, had a similar situation that our churches would act like the people of La Chambon. And we, we kind of went back to the interviews we've seen from the people in that town. There's these old PBS interviews that are black and white and grainy but their response was not yes, oh yeah, we were we were amazing. We did this thing. It was, how could we not? How could anybody who calls themselves Christian not do this? Their, uh, their priest in the town tells the story of how before any of this happened, they were people who deeply cared for one another so that when it came time to care for these Jewish folks, there was no question because it was how they lived their lives. Our hope is that we as a people so rooted in God's love, make this rhythm of justice and compassion, this rhythm of seeing Christ in people and seeing the image of God in them that we routinely, routinely feed the hungry, give, thir- give water to the thirsty, we clothe the naked and, and visit the prisoner. just finished the Sunday school class this morning and I think Timber rightly calls me out because I, I go for these big vision things. She says, but we, are, we do these things every day. And you do. You feed the hungry. You literally give drink to the thirsty. You clothe the naked and you visit the prisoner. In my uh, first few months here, when I met with each of, you, each of you, I heard your stories about how the gospel is embodied for you and how you embody it for others. What would it look like, though, for us to become even bolder in that witness? To invite God's grace to transform us even more, to see even more folks that need God's love. What would it look like in this time of chaos for us to look exactly like the sheep Jesus has identified in this passage? What could our town look like if instead of uh, falling into this partisan divide, we were united as a force for good across the land? If we set aside our issues of politics and 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 What could it look like if we daily were prepared that if it came to a Le Chambon kind of time for us, that we would be ready? What would it look like 
Our world is on fire. God's church stands as hope in the midst of all that. Friends, there are more people than ever who need food, who need water, who need clothing, who need visiting. If this is part of who you are and you have uh, gotten on this journey of sanctification, praise be to God. How might you ask God to grow you in this? What, what might be a way that you see more folks in need? If this sounds scary and uncomfortable, don't worry, you're not the first person. Uh, much of my life, this idea of, of, of caring for the other was scary. I guarantee you, if you look to anybody in this church that, that you admire, they, they would talk to you about it and they would pray with you. Imagine if we used our holy imagination to, to come together with Jan and the serve team to think about ways that we could deploy across this city and offer both physical and spiritual care. This passage passage invites us to see Christ in every single person we encounter. It doesn't allow us to dismiss them because of their motives or what they might do or how they are. This passage doesn't let us off with a, well, I've taken care of myself and I believe this. This passage doesn't let us off even with being Pretty devout Christians who avail ourselves of the means of grace. This is the culminating story from our Christ. You've heard all these things. You've, you've experienced this life with me. You've heard me teach. And you want to know how I'm going to judge you. It's how you care for the other. Those of you who have done it, come to my right hand. Enter into the reward that I have promised you. Eternal life. And those of you who haven't, eternal judgment waits. I really want to offer some easy way out to this passage. Uh, if, if I'm honest, uh, the things over the last few weeks that have ended with weeping and gnashing of teeth and people cast out have uh, rubbed against all the sensibilities I have. I have this great desire that there would be no, no goats. I have this great desire that when the Son of Man does come in his glory that there would only be sheep. That the church would have announced the good news of Christ and, and modeled this love such that the world is captivated by the Jesus story and encounters the risen Christ who gets to know the Christ who lives and reigns so that when the Son of Man does come in glory that there would be no goats. I want to do away with the judgment part. But I can't. Christ will come again in his glory. He'll gather all the nations and 
will judge us. If we've learned anything over this last year, it's that that God loves us. That God desires to pour his grace on us. That he desires to make us holy. And then he expects us to do something with that. There's no magic bullet. There's no uh, three simple steps. Richard Thompson regularly pushes me that uh, this, this journey of growing in faith and living it out seems to be a thing that we work over and over, that we remain faithful to what he has called and we continue to grow and to work, and to grow and to work. For as much as I don't know and as much as I don't like, I do know that our God continues to show up and to pour out his grace. That uh, when we worship, he shows up. When we pray, he shows up. When we fast, he shows up. When we read the revelation in scripture, he shows up. And when we come to the table, he shows up. He is lavish in his grace and, and desires that all would be made holy. Holy.